Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to Nerds Adulting, a podcast where grown-up nerds discuss being an adult and how nerd culture influenced us and still is. On this podcast, I invite special guests to discuss certain topics that include parenting, violent video games, television, movies, streamers, game developing, and anything else considered part of nerd culture. I've been a nerd my entire life, and even as an adult, I'm still vested in nerd culture, whether it be TV, movies, video games, or technology. I'm also a parent who unsurprisingly rubbed off on my children, who are now developing their own nerdy interests as well. I love the aspects of nerd culture and how it intertwines with us now as adults. How do we juggle our hobbies along with being a husband or wife, our jobs, being a parent? This is what this podcast is about, how we still are nerds even as adults. You know, nerd culture is mainstream now. So when you use the word nerd derogatorily, it means you're the one that's out of the zeitgeist. The War on Violent Video Games. I'm a parent and a gamer. I was born in 1983 and grew up playing Mortal Kombat, Doom, Quake, Grand Theft Auto, etc. I was in high school at the time of the Columbine shooting and a parent at the time of the Sandy Hook shooting. Most recently, our country faced two mass shootings in less than a span of 24 hours in the month of August. The first in an El Paso, Texas Walmart, where the gunman killed 22 people, and the other in Dayton, Ohio, where 27 were killed under a span of 32 seconds. The following day, Donald Trump addressed the nation. He said, We must stop the glorification of violence in our society. This includes the gruesome and grisly video games that are now commonplace. After the Sandy Hook shooting, where 26 people, including 20 children between 6 and 7 years old, and 6 adult staff members were gunned down ruthlessly, President Barack Obama suggested more research needed to be done on the effect of video games and other violent media on children. What's the deal with violent video games being the scapegoat for violence in America? Today, I welcome Chris Ferguson, PhD, psychologist, media researcher, and psychology professor at Stetson University, author of Suicide Kings, Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games is Wrong, and How Madness Shaped History, releasing January 7th, 2020. Chris, thank you so much for doing this. I'm super excited to talk to you about uh, violence in video games and um, other nerd uh, adult type things, which is the focus of, of our show. I, I can't wait to um, learn a little bit more about you because I, I just read your your book, uh, Moral Combat, and it was um, just in a fascinating read. And so I'm super excited to have you here. So thank you for doing this. Yeah, well, cool. No, it's great to be on today. I appreciate you uh, giving me the invitation. Uh, yeah, no problem. Um, so just to kick things off, I kind of want to you know, do a little introduction to get to know you a little bit. Um, okay. How did you wind up becoming a psychologist? Yeah, that's a good story. I sometimes wonder myself. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, it, it, was, it was, you know, I'll be honest with you, it was kind of the plan B. You know, you know every uh, parent tells their kid, you know, you know, that wants to be like a rock star or whatever, you know, make sure you have a plan B. So this, this is definitely the plan B. But it's, it's been a pretty good plan B, though. Um, but, uh, no, I always wanted to be kind of like the next, like, guitarist or Pink Floyd kind of a thing, you know. I <laughs> nice. always, yeah, always want to be, like, a rock star or, or uh, I mean, I, st- I still have these dreams of, like, being a novelist and, and that kind of stuff. So I haven't entirely given up on the, those things. But, uh, yeah, but this was definitely the, the, the plan B kind of thing. Like, if I had to have, like, a, like a semi-real job, like, what would it be? And, um, yeah, it turns out I'm, like, really bad at a lot of things. And, <laughs> I think, like, you know, about your 
early years we were kind of like you know teen and 20s we're all kind of spent discovering all the things i'm i'm bad at it and what i mean by that is like you know i'm not i, I guess in many ways i'm not a very conventional person in in, in the sense that i like, guess it's, it's difficult for me to have a typical nine to five ish job and because i'm late you know i'm, I'm like late, <laughs> late getting in and i don't like people telling me what to do i i hate paperwork i hate routine you know all these kind of things that are actually quite common you know for a lot of um, you know, a lot of jobs. And so, um, so yeah, so, I mean, I kind of had to like think about, and and I wouldn't want to be something like, like a doctor, like, you know what I mean? Like I would probably would kill someone, you know, so there, <laughs> there uh, you know, <laughs> there's lots of other places where you just, you know, like, uh, you know, airplane mechanic would not be what you'd want me doing, you know, it's just, uh, I have this kind of like ADD thing that kind of goes on too. So I need like, you know, a constant change and, and any kind of routine eventually kind of dulls my attention, you know? So, uh, um, yeah. So, I mean, it just happened to be like, you know, you know, it's, it's kind of like what every college student does who realizes they're about to graduate and doesn't want to actually work, you know, is go to graduate school, um, <laughs> and just kind of like kick the can down the road for a little while until you actually come up with a plan. Uh, and, uh, it was, it was fortunate in, in graduate school. I, I tried teaching, and um, loved it, and 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 actually felt like I was pretty pretty good at. It. Well, the student evaluations were good, you know, so it yeah. seemed like I was pretty good at it, and and I enjoyed it a lot. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is the thing, um, and uh, and it really was for teaching that I, I initially got you know oh. involved in this, and then you know looking at like the professors and their lives, their lives is. You know, not that they didn't work hard, but you know their their schedules are so flexible. You know what I mean? They didn't have to clock in from like eight thirty to five, and and uh, you know that kind of stuff. And they you know seemed to be fairly autonomous. You know, and so and so it, it kind of checked off a lot of boxes for me. You know, in terms of that, like you know, being non routine, uh, fairly autonomous, fairly flexible in scheduling, and and um, so yeah, so it ended up being that this was you know the the probably you know of the you know, 5% of jobs I'd actually be good at. This was one of them at any rate. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, so I, was, I think I think I was very lucky to fall into this and, um, you know, have it match as well as it has with my personality and my abilities and, and you know, con- conversely, you know, match or not match with my limitations, you know, uh, that, um, yeah. So it ended up, be, ended up being a good thing. I mean, I'm still hoping, of course, that one of my novels will sell a billion copies and I'll be the next Stephen <laughs> King. But, uh, but until that time, this is working out pretty good. Um, awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So it's funny because in my job, I work for UNC School of Medicine. Um, I worked there in 2016 as a support, you know, uh, support personnel. Now I'm in information security. And the way you talk about the professors uh, is kind of how I feel. They seem so just chill, for lack of a better term. They're just like, oh, well, you can't get to it today. Okay, that's fine. Like, it's usually the doctors that are more like, oh, you know, we need this now. It's not working. You know? right. um, <laughs> so I totally totally can relate to that um with the people that i work with so um mm-hmm. awesome so obviously the show is focused on nerdy things and grown-ups being nerds um what kind of nerdy things were you into growing up and are you still a nerd and what kind oh, of yeah. things are you still into oh i'm definitely still a nerd yeah <laughs> so it's, i'm just I'm, I'm so glad that like nerdness is like come around and finally become cool <laughs> right in, in, in its own way because it wasn't when i was growing up unfortunately <laughs> so yeah no i mean probably like my big nerdist my biggest nerdish thing is like dungeons and dragons i'm a mm. huge Dungeons and dragons player always well i mean i probably started when i was like 11 or 12 and uh and then you know I, I still play at least once a week you know mostly online now with with friends online but oh uh, awesome 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's kind of. I mean, and I, and I, and I kind of credit you know, which you know, back in the eighties was like a big deal. I mean, there was a whole like moral panic over Dungeons and Dragons. Mm. I mean, I remember like my parents or my mom in particular, kind of you know, wondering if I wasn't gonna you know develop schizophrenia, <laughs> or become a Satanist or something like that. You know? And uh, I mean, she was she was reasonably cool about it, but I, I don't think she liked it. Um, you know, but um, you know, but I actually kind of credit that with you know to a large degree. I think. You know, it, it was really like a big positive force in my life. You know what I mean? It was like a, a great thing to, you know, turn to in, in times of stress. You know, it was, it was great for the escapism of it. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, and still now, I mean, I, I, you know, I think, you know, my life would be a lot, you know, less enriched, if you will, if, if I wasn't able to play, you know, at least once or sometimes twice, um, you know, a week to, as, as time allows. So uh, that's probably my big thing. And of course, I was, you know, I was into the Atari, the Atari 2600 and mm-hmm. video games and and uh, and that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I'm a nerd in other ways now too. Like I'm a, I'm a big history buff, you know. So I like a lot of history stuff. And it's actually kind of, you know, you know, in academia, of course, we have a history department. So there's a little bit of a positive thing there. But generally speaking, it's hard to get people to talk about history and care. Um, so have you talked to my son? My son's 10, and he is like obsessed with history he knows like the flags and stuff like we were watching something on tv and they showed the maryland flag my son was like oh is that the maryland flag and we're like what and so he like and he can like verbally describe like almost all 50 state flags. it was that's cool yeah Yeah. good for him yeah well it's tricky i mean i think you know this this, history is like full of lots of great stories i mean there's a lot of like you know game of thrones this kind of Mm -hmm. stuff like like that actually happened and you know but I think that sometimes, uh, you know, what happens for some people, and I, I remember having this experience, like in you know, middle school and high school, is you know, and then sometimes college as well, is like, uh, you know, historians sometimes ruin history a little bit, you know, in the sense of, you know, I, I remember like, you know, learning about like the Revolutionary War, which is actually it's full of great stories, you know what I mean? But like, you get, uh, I think sometimes the historians, like their doctoral state dissertation is like the impact of the price of potatoes in Ireland on like, you know, the the you know, transatlantic trade and, and it's like you know peripheral influence on the revolutionary war so all of a sudden you're you know you're hoping to hear about the battle of saratoga and all you're talking about is potatoes you know what i mean and uh, so i think that's kind of what happens sometimes with some people with history but you know they don't realize there's actually are all these really great stories in there somewhere um but yeah but yeah i'm definitely uh you know, I, I've been very lucky, lucky to have, uh, you know, met a wife who was immune to my nerdishness um, because uh, it was looking bleak there for a while, but in like uh, middle and high school. So. Hey, I'm right there with you. I, I was I'm surprised my wife puts up with my 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 nerdish ways. And what's funny, though, is like maybe you can chime in on this. Um, I have so I have a son and a daughter and my daughter's seven. My son is 10. Like, um. And so yesterday I was playing Destiny 2 on my computer and my daughter was playing Minecraft like literally sitting right next to me on the Xbox. My mm-hmm. son's a huge gamer, you know, and it's just funny how all these like nerdy things like my son is making command command line tools and windows and things like that and like all this like nerdy stuff that I used to do just kind of like, you know, filtered out of me somehow to my children. So I find nice. that like extremely uh, fascinating how my children you know take to the, like the sort of nerdiness of the things that i was into or that i just do on a daily basis um yeah. um so cool um so we're talking about uh video games and the violence of video games and this 
studies behind it. What what prompted me to reach out to you eventually was so we had the tragic uh, mass shootings in August that happened in the span of 24 hours, and then you know once again Donald Trump came out and brought up the topic of violent video games once again, and so I never really delved into the topic of. Uh, how these studies work and how the research is done and, you know, all the stuff that goes into it. Cause you, you hear it all the time on both sides. And so I, I found your book, uh, uh, moral combat, a brief history of violent video games. And it was an extremely fascinating read. It obviously, um, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Why the war in violent video games is wrong. Um, and so I just, it, obviously you guys took the side of, you know, how, Violent video games is not bad for us, essentially, um, right. and you provided tremendous amounts of evidence in there. So, basically, what I'm getting is, um, how did you find yourself studying violent video games and like the impact that it has on us and the society? You know, yeah, I mean, sort of like my psychology career it was kind of by accident. So, um, you know, I, I, I guess I've just been the uh, recipient of a number of, you know. Uh, Lucky or depending on the perspective, unlucky you know, circumstances <laughs> or whatever, you know, so I, I wish I could say my whole life was planned out. It really, really wasn't. Um, but uh, no, it was, you know, so I, I was in graduate school and this was going back, you know, almost 20 years at this point. And uh, it was a little bit after the Columbine massacre had happened and, you know, in 1999. And it was it was just random circumstance. I mean, I was, you know, interested in, like like a lot of, you know, probably college students you know, are, I was interested in studying like, you know, serial killers and mass murderers and, and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. all the very sensational things. And I, and I ended up kind of, you know, getting fairly close in the sense of at very least I was doing work with inmates, you know, so I, I was, you know, doing like forensic psychology kind of stuff. And, uh, and our uh, PhD program at, at University of Central Florida, which is where I graduated from, they, um, at the time, I don't, they might still do this, they required us to take two courses outside of psychology entirely. You know, you kind of had to have this, like, almost like a minor, if you will, in, in some some other area. And, uh, and of course, being interested in, in forensic, I, I went into, you know, criminal justice and took a couple courses there. And, and one of them, which happened to be a summer course, um, and uh, they, it was arranged so that they had like a different guest speaker every week um, who would talk about whatever topic. And and um, and this particular professor from from University of South Florida came one week, and she happened to mention this is probably like two thousand one or so. She happened to mention an article. You know, so this is all sounding like synchronicity here, and it, it, it really is. And she, you know, she just happened to mention this article by. You know, two scholars in psychology uh, that who were comparing the effects of violent media to smoking and lung cancer, and kind of saying like the effects. You know, there was no doubt whatsoever that you know we could we could all stop debating this and you know and look at this as being as as huge a public health crisis as smoking and lung cancer. You know, has historically been, and 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 I was really you know at the time kind of taken aback you know by you know by that, and and, and I think that's you know kind of a consistent thread to, you know, of course I do still most of my research on violence in video games, but even where I, I do research on, in other areas, um, you know, the consistent thread I would say is, you know, my pro- my being surprised by the, you know, degree of causal certainty people sometimes express about topics that are maybe 
not don't maybe don't warrant that that level of causal certainty, you know. And that gets me kind of curious about looking at the data and sometimes doing studies of of, of my own. So that was kind of like the accidental way that that I had gotten involved. And there really is a whole bunch of like you know like almost like uh, counterfactual history somewhere in here that if only I hadn't taken that class, or if only that particular person hadn't been a guest speaker that week, or <laughs> and if only she hadn't you know referenced this one study, and if only that study had been more modest. In its claims and hadn't made these like smoking and lung cancer kind of claims, I might I might not have gotten interested, um, you know, in this. At all. I mean, I mean, I was I was aware that, that the debate was going on, and you know, and uh, uh, certainly had you know my thoughts about it even before that. But in terms of like deciding to make it a a research career uh, to the extent that I did, I I, I you know up until two thousand and one, I, I never would have thought I was going to be a video game researcher. I, th- I thought I was going to be mostly doing like serial killers and mass murders. Um, you know, and, and I do a little bit of that, but, um, but yeah, so I, I, I kind of got shunted off entirely in this other direction, but it's, you know, but it's been a good thing. It's been interesting. And, and it's a heck of a lot easier to do research on video games than it is serial killers. So, um, it, it probably was a positive, <laughs> a positive move in that sense, at very least. You say it was, it's easier, uh, uh, how so? I'm kind of curious because I'm a huge, obviously, mine hunters and stuff. And my boss yeah. actually was a, he worked for Vermont um, State Troopers. So he gives me all this stuff that he worked on. So I'm yeah. kind of curious to know um, why is it easier, do you think? Well, I mean, I've been doing some research with the, you know, in fact, my doctoral dissertation was with the inmates at uh, Orange County Corrections uh, here in Orlando. Um, and, uh, you know, I was very lucky to, to, you know, have that opportunity to, uh, you know, work with, uh, with, with corrections, but generally speaking, like, you know, correctional facilities are not that thrilled about, you know, having people come, you know, it, it'll, it'll, it can be, it can happen, but, you know, mm-hmm. there's a ton of hoops that you need to, to jump through, uh, in order to get access to, you know, those populations. And, uh, and that's just talking about, sort of, you know, general population inmates, you know, if you really want to study like, you know serial killers or mass homicide perpetrators there's not that many of them you know to begin with and you know and gaining access to those populations is even uh trickier assuming that they even want to be you know participants in uh in research whereas video games you know we can, we can just study college students you know there <laughs> you everywhere. Go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody cares about them i mean they're, they're not a protected <laughs> population at all you know and uh we don't have to pay them or anything you know we just give them extra credit you know and, and even <laughs> To the extent we do like research on on teens, you know, something like that, um, even even teens are easier to get at, you know, to some extent. Uh, uh, and there even are these like big, you know, uh, survey studies that have open data that you know you can access. Uh, you know, where they've followed thousands of teens over, you know, some number of years, and uh, you know, sometimes you get access to these big data sets. You do, you don't even have to do the data collection necessarily if you can access them. Um, so in that sense, I mean, it's easy easier to get access to those types of populations just because, um, you know, or, or, or populations involved in video gaming because either they're fairly straightforward to get access to yourself or there are these kind of like big databases that are, you know, accessible and you can look at video game variables, you know, in them. And, and there's really not that sort of equivalence. Um, you know, looking at these kind of more sensationalist topics about like you know serial killers and mass homicide perpetrators. I mean, there are there are some studies of these groups, of course, but mm-hmm. you know, it's just uh, it, it would be harder, I think, to you know. I mean, I mean, if even if I was studying inmates, you know, so, you know, more generally, I don't I don't think I would have been able to publish nearly as, as many research articles as I have done over the past fifteen years as as I have been able to do with video games. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. Um, 
I'm fascinated. I kind of want to talk more about that, but the top, I'm going to stay focused on the topic <laughs> at hand because I mean, like my wife and I are huge fans of mine hunters, and you know, the was mm-hmm. making a murder was amazing or not amazing. It was really sad to watch, but there's so much like true crime stuff out there nowadays that it's kind of uh, grabbed our attention. So, um, yes. but staying at the topic at hand. Um, <laughs> Do you uh do you play video games currently? I mean, have you played them throughout your life? Because uh, you talk a lot about a, a about a lot of games in the book, um, mm. Mortal Kombat that I actually played a lot of myself. You know, growing up, I was in 1999. I was in high school when Columbine happened, and nine was in the early 90s when Mortal Kombat came out. You know, my parents bought me both Mortal Kombat one and two, and I remember all the fuss about the violence. And yeah. um, so I'm kind of curious, what was your uh, history like with video games? You know, personally and currently as well. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, I, I grew up with the Atari twenty six hundred, and of course, you know, that was at the same time where there was kind of the the heyday of the cabinet games. You know, when everybody actually would go to arcades and and blow like you know ten or twenty bucks and quarters, you know, spend you know playing these cabinet games, um, which is not a thing anymore for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other than you sometimes you see a few in like you know uh, some of these like like uh, Chuck E. Cheese or those kind of places. Um, but, um, yeah, so I grew up in this kind of like, you know, arcade slash Atari 2600 era, which was awesome. I mean, I remember like, you know, this was like almost like a before and after. I mean, there was like, you know, the early set, you know, I actually was born in 71. So there were like the seventies, right. Where these things weren't in existence. And, you know, my, my memories of, of childhood before video games was like this bleak gray, like, you know, <laughs> uh, uninteresting, you know, what, what am I going to do today? You know, uh, you know, and then the, like video games became a thing. And then it was like, you know, the, the Lord had descended upon us and bestowed his <laughs> gifts, you know, to his humble, you know, uh, penitence, you know, and, uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it was really a wonderful era, and then of course, you know, there was like the famous crash of the video game industry, and in, I think it was like eighty three, eighty four, somewhere in that range, and and that happened to coincide with like my teen years. So I think for a while there, I, I drifted away from playing video games very often, um, and uh, you know, I was, too, I was either playing Dungeons and Dragons or you know, sort of trying to attract the interest of girls, usually very unsuccessfully, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, and, and, and I think it wasn't until maybe I graduated high school that I kind of came back to playing and that, and then that was on mostly actually on computers. Um, and, uh, so I, I missed a lot of like the early Nintendo. I think I did have the, uh, the original NES and I don't, but I don't think I used it very much. Um, and it was really more of, uh, I remember I had, uh, uh, and you probably haven't even heard of this computer. There's an Atari ST that they actually made. Uh, so there were these, like, of course they had, like, the Macintoshes were coming available and the IBM clones were coming available. Um, but they also had these two other computers, the Atari ST and the Commodore Amiga, which were, like, these incredibly um, sophisticated graphics computers that nobody bought. Um, and other than me <laughs> and, like, a few, a few other people. So I remember the 64. The Commodore, I remember the Commodore 64. That's how I got into computers, actually, was my neighbor had one. Yeah. This was like the Commodore's like next, you know, computer after the 64. Um, so it was uh, it was more it was, you know, it had more power, you know, and mm. had more graphics power. And, and the games it could play were beautiful, um, you know. And initially there was a lot of excitement around these things because they were like technically better than the PC or the Macintosh uh, at the time. But, uh, you know, it's one of those like, market saturation kind of things. It was like Betamax, right? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It was better, but nobody bought it, you know? <laughs> so because nobody bought it, there's no material. Eventually there's no games. And, you know, I actually, I think I kept the thing for like five years. And it, so 
actually I got pretty good use out of it. Um, but uh, you know, the the I was always jealous of like the PC owners because they had so many more games they could play. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but but basically, you know, for that period on, I was mostly a PC gamer. Um, you know, once Atari, you know, ST finally, you know, just became completely outdated. You know, I moved on to just a you know PC. I think those was like back in the four eighty six days, um, and uh, and mostly was a PC gamer. From that point on, I played a lot of like the Civilization games, a lot of role playing games like Boulder Gate and the kind of D and D theme games. Um, not so much the shooter games until I think like the Medal of Honors and Call of Duty started coming out. Because uh, there again, it was kind of like that tie in with with history there to some extent. Um, and uh, and I really didn't get into consoles until about the the Xbox 360, and it was actually very specifically. Uh, because of being involved in this research area, actually, that you know, my first few studies were done on, excuse me, PC computers, and uh, and that occurred to me to be kind of silly because nobody, you know, most gamers at the time were using consoles. So eventually, I convinced my uh, university to buy me a couple Xbox 360s. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, and then then I was like, well, I, gotta, I you know, I gotta play some of these games too to sort of keep in touch with what's going on. And then uh, yeah, so now I have um, you know in in our house we have two Xbox Ones and a PlayStation Four VR system. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, now I actually probably play more on the console than I do on the on the on the PC. Uh, it's also because my PC, my desktop is actually quite old, so it can't run any new new games. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, now I mean the game I'm playing right now is Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which I've you know, been playing for a few months at this point, and uh, uh, it's such it's such a large game that I'll probably still be playing it, you know, several several months from now until I get through most of the storyline. Um, so uh, yeah, I've just been kind of absorbed. I also again it sort of ties into my interest in history too mm-hmm. because uh, yeah the Greek setting, which is really really super cool. Um, so uh, so yeah, that's what I've been doing right now. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely still play. It, I, I kind of go back and forth. I mean, there's sometimes where I don't play very much, just uh, almost because I get too busy writing about games, and um, and then there are other times when I kind of almost have to force myself of like, you know, you need you know you need to enjoy, you know, you have some fun, yeah, right. you know, yeah. enjoy some games as well as, as uh, you know researching them and, and writing about them. So I think I've gotten myself back into a phase of playing them uh, a bit more now. If you'd asked me this maybe like five years ago, I probably would have had to say like, I actually, I actually don't play that much. I mostly write about them. Um, <laughs> but now I've kind of, you know, sort of since, since coming to Orlando, I kind of, you know, forced myself into like, you know, these, these are actually a lot of fun. You ought to enjoy them a bit more rather than just talk about them all the time. So, yeah, so yeah that's kind of where I'm at now. Oh, that's all awesome. Right. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge gamer myself. Um, I still I've been playing a lot of Destiny Two. Actually, I was like the opposite of you. I played a lot of console games growing up because mm-hmm. my dad and my mom were like those computers are too expensive. But the funny thing is, is when I was in junior high, I wanted to be a programmer, and I can you know kind of talk my dad into buying like this brand new computer, and I wound up just playing Doom and Wolfenstein on it all the time. <laughs> so, um, which is another game you reference because of the the, I guess it was Columbine when that. It, it kind of like blew up where everyone was like, Oh, video games, yeah. violence. And kind of, we found out that they were playing it. Um, the two shooters from Colin were playing doom a lot and actually a modded version of doom where they were make, building schools and stuff. So it was a little different, but so I was like, Oh yeah, I played that a lot too. And I remember it being violent, but I never thought, Hey, I'm going to go and, you know, take my actions from this game and, you know, and go do this in the real world. So, um, um, so it's funny. It's like we have opposite parallels when it comes to our gaming, <laughs> gaming yeah. lives growing up. Uh, but um, so I kind of want to uh, talk a little bit about 
uh, Moral Combat, um, and your co-author, uh, Patrick Markey, just a little bit. I, I'm kind of curious to know, like, how did you guys meet and how did this kind of come to fruition? Like, how did this book uh, come to happen? Yeah. So, so honestly, it's, it's mostly Patrick's book. I mean, he, he invited me, you know, to, uh, to help out with it, but really the conceptualization and, and, and such was, was, was Patrick's. And I'm just kind of just like, uh, hanger on, you know, to some extent, (laughs) (laughs) but no, it was, it was cool writing it actually. So, so I think, you know, Patrick and I met through email, uh, and I think it was because somewhere around 2007, I think we had both published really our sort of our first article, on video games, uh, research article, you know, way back, um, around then. And, uh, and, and I, I think just, you know, out of curiosity and maybe being friendly, well, I don't remember who reached out to who, honestly. And, but, you know, we kind of reached out to each other and started chatting and, you know, and, and back in those days, I would say, you know, and I, I don't mean to speak for Patrick, of course, but, you know, I would say back in those days, he was probably somewhat more accepting of the idea that video games could have some impact on aggression, you know, at very least. And, and maybe he still is, you know, I, I, again, I shouldn't, you know, imply that he, you know, wouldn't still say that, but, right. but, but I, I think, you know, he initially probably would have said that, you know, video games at least, or violent video games, at least in the short term, you know, could increase, you know, probably like minor aggressive feelings and behaviors and, and, you know, and stuff. And I, I think his perspective, and this is, you know, sort of based on things I've heard him say was that, you know, he, he, on the other hand, did get concerned when people were kind of like extending that to mass shootings and, and, and uh, you know, more serious acts of, of violence. Whereas I, you know, I'm, I'm probably more skeptical even on the level of these kind of like minor acts of aggression. I, I, I don't think the evidence is there even for relatively minor acts. Um, but, um, but yeah, we kind of stayed in, in, in touch. And I, and I think his, again, I'm sort of speaking for him, but I think his perspective shifted a little bit over you know, maybe six or seven years into becoming somewhat more skeptical of, of effects more generally, um, and maybe at least become more vocal about, you know, concerns about extending it to, you know, violence in society. So, uh, so I think he was, he was putting together the idea for a book around, you know, something around 2013, I think. And, uh, and, and I'd had some similar musings, and and I think even some people have sometimes suggested, like, why don't you write a book on this for the you know general public because they probably be interested. And uh, so he he approached me somewhere around 2013, 2014, you know, with this with this idea of you know did, would I be interested in co-authoring with him a book that he already was working on, um, you know, at that point. And I said, yeah, that be that sounds that sounds great. One because probably the world doesn't need two books that are <laughs> covering the same ground. And, uh, and two, that's, you know, only have to work, <laughs> you know, in that case, if, if we're, you know, sort of writing it together. Um, and it was awesome. He, he was a great, you know, he is a great person to, uh, you know, to collaborate with. And, uh, you know, he's a great writer. And uh, he's, I think, shares, you know, kind of a comical view of the world uh, that, that, that I have. We tried, we tried to make the book fun you know, as much as possible. So it wasn't just like a dusty tome talking about research. I mean, it, it is a, a, somewhere at its core, a dusty tome talking about research, but you know, we tried to have a lot of jokes in there and have a lot of fun and make it accessible for people. And so I think, you know, we kind of shared that, that mentality of, of, uh, you know, trying to have that kind of tone to, uh, uh to the book. And, uh, uh, and it just made, you know, it just made writing, writing it fun, you know? And, uh, yeah, he was, he was a great person to work with and, uh, I'm sure we'll probably end up working on something else you know, in the future, you know, maybe this whole like smartphone debate that, you know, that's mm. going on now or something. I don't know. You know we, we don't have any actual plans. I'm just musing. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. uh, that would be know, interesting, though, I think. That would be an interesting topic. I'd be interested in it. 
Yeah, it seems like it's the, it's the next big like moral panic, right? Is this like you know smartphones are causing suicide and and uh, you know all of that stuff. Um, so yeah, yeah. Then there are other people like Andy Shabilsky and Amy Orban who are doing a lot of great work in in, in that area. I haven't I haven't done much with smartphones myself. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, it's, it's probably the next spin of this particular cycle of, you know, blaming technology for all that's wrong with the world. And, uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe, maybe we will write another book about that. Yeah. Um, I will say, yes, the humor in the book was, I think, well done. I think the way that you guys, um, put the jokes into there and the kind of the sarcasm on some of the things in there <laughs> fit really well. And it was tied pretty well too. I, I'm cause actually, I kind of lied. I didn't actually read the book. I listened to it because I have a long commute. So that's how I oh, uh, enough, yeah. consumed the book. And the yeah. uh, the guy who read it, I had his name on my notes, but I can't remember his name. He did an excellent job um, on narrating it. It was Good. really well done. So all right, so moving on. Um, I con- you've already mentioned Moral Panic uh, once or twice uh, in this discussion slash interview. Can you kind of give a short high-level overview of what a moral panic is so listeners can kind of know what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So basically a moral panic occurs um, whenever society or aspects of society, which typically tend to be the you know uh, older um, adult members of society, uh, tend to focus in on something as a blame or scapegoat for a perceived social problem. You know, the, the social problem may be real or it may not be real, but there's sort of the simple narrative evolves about the reason why that problem has, uh, you know, come to, to be. And, you know, with, with a moral panic, there's a sort of general sense that sort of an initial emotional gut feeling is made. And then that conclusion... Um, it becomes resistant to any actual data. Um, and if anything, you know, kind of puts pressure on certain stakeholders like politicians and news media and scholars to support, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the narrative. So we, we see these kind of like historical patterns of more panics about technology and media that, you know, quite literally stretch back 2,500 years to the ancient Greeks. But, you know, in the 20th century, you could see the same thing about like Elvis Presley and, and, um, you know, rock music in the 1980s and Dungeons and Dragons once again and, you know, rap music in the 1990s and Harry Potter and all kinds of other stuff. So, there, you know, there's, again, there's sort of this conclusion made by, you know, a certain usually fairly influential group in uh, society. And again, usually caters to you know, older adults and their perceptions of things. Um, and, uh, you know, a conclusion is made that something is bad and is causing some sort of perceived social problem. And uh, and again, that, you know, tends to be fairly resistant to to data that would 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 challenge it. So the, the idea that like kids today are more X, whatever X might be, than they ever have been. And this thing is contributing to it, you know, is uh, is, is terrible. So, you know, kids today are more delinquent than they've ever have been. And X and X can be everything from Socrates through violent video games is responsible for it. You know, it's kind of the sort of narrative you find with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, a moral panic, but, and, and of course it, it can focus on other things. And so there sometimes are these kind of like flash in the pan moral panics about like, uh, you know, there was a scary clown thing from a few years ago. There was the Momo challenge that was just from like a year ago. So the idea that, again, there's like this, threatening thing that is hovering over the well-being of our youth and um and you know and it needs to be eliminated whatever it may be um but in many of these situations you know like the momo challenge or the scary clown thing there really wasn't even 
you know, any, any actual incident uh, that occurred that would have supported in the first place, at least would violent video games, at least violent video games exist, right? You know, mm-hmm. so um, that one may at least have some, you know, the, the hypothesis may not be entirely irrational, even if it didn't work out in terms of data. Um, but, you know, the idea that they're just like, you know, internet Momo challenge thing that's causing kids to commit suicide, yet we can't find any kids who've committed suicide <laughs> based on it, you know, is yeah. uh, even more an example of how irrational some of these things, uh, you know, can can actually be. Yeah, you, you, there was a couple of interesting examples that I, I wasn't aware of, like the, what was the rainbow parties where teenagers, yeah, yeah teenagers, <laughs> like there was this rumor that there was parties going on where girls would wear different lipsticks and give oral sex to the guys or the boys and there was no evidence of that and it was like and then the satanism which i wasn't aware of either um because obviously i was a little young at that time but it's just yeah. and then how far it goes back it just it was a really uh something that I, I was like i knew of of these type of things but i didn't know that there was actually like a scientific term for it and i was like perfect mm-hmm. the way it was laid out um reading that so um and then Talking about video games, I just kind of wanted to add, I was kind of surprised that even as, I think it was 2012, um, it started in like the early 90s, I want to say, um, correct me if I'm wrong, where the, the video game panic kind of set in with Joe Lieberman, um, mm-hmm. having, I think the, they had some initial like two hour committee on violent, violent video games where they talked about Mortal Kombat, and I think they showed yeah. some of the Night Trap stuff. And then even to up until 2012, I think it was, again... Joe Lieberman, I was still talking about it, and I could not believe that over t- 20, 30 years that they're still talking about this. And I kind of feel like it's died down more recently. I could be wrong. Who knows when PS Five comes out? You know, we'll see what happens yeah. then. with virtual reality. That's the new thing, right? So we don't. We'll yeah. see what happens with that. Um, yeah. So, given one of the questions that I always had um, as I've grown is I see these articles and they say this does this study shows this right and this study says this and before I used to just take that headline and when we would have a discussion I would say well you know high fructose corn syrup uh, causes cancers because studies have shown that and then one time I had this conversation with someone that was a little bit more enlightened than me was like well what study was that right. so then you know like what was your source and so that's when I kind of got into this whole thing when uh president obama or donald trump asked for more studies on violent video games like where and how does that begin yeah that's a that's a great question so the the the, the good or maybe bad news i don't know depending on your perspective is that actually violent video game studies are pretty cheap you know so it doesn't really cost us much to do them, um you know for the most part uh so yeah it was kind of this you know of course you know the uh, obama biden they, they they were calling for that as really part of a larger a uh, call for research on guns, you know, gun gun violence and uh, and issues related to that. So I think like the video games was kind of tossed in as uh, you know, I, I I actually you know met Joe Biden as part of these like meetings he had around the Sandy Hook shooting, and uh, you know my my impression was of him at the time was that you know, he was not really gunning for video games. This mm-hmm. was not like one of the things that was at the top of his agenda, but. But but I think that their perspective is that what they were really interested in was was sort of like something related to gun control, and uh, and I think they just wanted to have this kind of impression like they weren't going after just one thing, you know. So I think they threw in video games there to seem well rounded. I don't think it worked well for them, but you know I think that was their their motivation was to seem like they were you know throwing everything at the wall and seeing what stuck, you know, kind of, uh, um, approach. So I think it was kind of political, but, you know, but so the idea was of course that this, you know, the CDC or someone was going to fund these, you know, studies for, 
uh, on vinyl video games, which would would have changed the field exactly not at all. You know, basically everybody would have kept doing the exact same studies they were doing anyway. So it 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 wasn't a field. I mean, there there are you probably nearly 200 studies of, of vinyl video games at this point. So it's not a field that is like suffering for lack of studies. It's a field that's suffering for lack of good studies sometimes, but it is not a field for, you know, uh, suffering for lack of studies. But, um, yeah, I mean, so the typical, yeah, like I said, I mean, the typical studies are done with college students and, and they're, they're pretty cheap, you know, because college students don't, you know, require money. You know, they you can be offered extra credit. Uh, in order to participate, it's, it's really more if you want to do teen studies that you probably would need a little bit of money, you know, to pay teens to come into the lab and play video games or things like that. But, but even those wouldn't require like you know multi million dollar you know grant funding. You know, it'd be nice to have a little bit of money for something like that. Um, but uh, you know, as com- you know, compared to cancer research or things like that, you know, this is probably not where taxpayers want to throw a lot of money you know, at, um, at these kinds of things. But, uh, yeah, I mean, really the two types of studies we do are, 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 you know, one is experiments where we bring people into lab and have them play different types of games and see how they, you know, feel or act in terms of really usually minor aggression. Um, you know, obviously we can't have people knife each other in the lab, <laughs> stuff like that, you know, um, not in the U S at least, uh, <laughs> or, or we do these survey based studies where we, you know, follow kids over time and see what things, you know, early on in their lives predict outcomes, you know, later on, uh, in lives. And those are the ones that maybe cost a little bit more money. Um, but, um, but we still have, you know, a fair number of them, um, you know, at this point. Um, so those, those are kind of the two ways, generally speaking, that we try to, uh, get some kind of information, <clears throat> excuse me, on whether violence in video games relate to, um, aggression or violent behavior, uh, in the real world. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was really curious to know, like, how do you provide, like, how do you provide accurate, accurate results? And like, is it possible to like truly say that video games causes X, you know, like, is it in your experience, have you found any, are you confident in saying that you found definitive evidence uh, and like, how does that work um, sort of way? Yeah, I mean, it's, it can be tricky. So, I mean, you know, there's, there's a whole larger narrative right now, right, about psychology is going through this replication crisis, right? You know, so there, there were lots of things that we thought were absolutely true in psychology and probably still are in a lot of intro psychology textbooks, by the way, <laughs> uh, that are false, you know, and, and they're false because the methods in psychological research were very loose. You know, they weren't they weren't standardized. They weren't transparent. You know, they weren't rigorous. And that, you know, basically allowed a lot of researchers, I think in good faith mostly, you know, to sort of promote hypotheses that they believed in. Um, but they did so by manipulating their data in various ways that wasn't outright fraud, um, but also wasn't good science, you know. Um, and so I, I think we're in a period now of sort of reflecting on a lot of that. And um, and that's why I said, you know, there, there really are probably somewhere like 200 or maybe, you know, maybe more, maybe less studies of violence in video games. But most of them are not very good, you know, and so that's kind of the trick, you know, with, you know, making conclusions based on this research. And particularly if you have things like meta-analyses that combine them, there's this idea of meta-analysis that, you know, you have garbage that goes in, you have garbage that comes out. So meta-analyses oftentimes don't tell us a lot um, because they're just, you're just throwing trash studies into these meta-analyses in the, you know, in the first place. Um, So, I mean, I think right now we have maybe, 
you know, uh, probably less than a dozen studies that I would regard as being, you know, well standardized, you know, transparent, you know, what we call pre-registered, which means that the researchers can't, you know, or at least it's harder for researchers to manipulate their data to get hypotheses they want. And and the majority of these studies, I, I say there might be about 10 of them, you know, the majority of these studies have not found any links between violence and video games and either mild aggression or more serious aggression or violence in uh, the real world. I think there's one except, you know, one, maybe one of the nine, you know, has found some evidence for, um, you know, or one of the 10, I should say, I can't count in my head, uh, <laughs> you know, has found evidence for, or I can't subtract in my head <laughs> as the case may be. Uh, you know, so I, I think from that, you know, I, I would say, you know, I, you obviously, I don't, I don't want to be the inverse of like the cigarette and lung cancer thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Say that you know we should always be open to new data and, and new methods and this kind of stuff, and you never know. But 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 I would say from this point, particularly from these this group of pre-register studies, that those are the most rigorous studies, and they are largely not finding effects. So at very least, it would warrant caution in our descriptions of this field and the conclusions we can make from it that I don't think we can say that we have evidence right now uh, that would link video games to even mild aggression. Um, You know, that could always change. But right now we just don't have that evidence. And we seem to have a lot of evidence to suggest from different sources that there is not likely to be a relationship between video games and certainly the kinds of outcomes like violent crime that really people are most worried about. So I, I think that's where things are at, you know, today. I, I, I don't think the field has a lot to show for itself mm-hmm. uh, after 30 plus years of research um, in terms of parents worrying about this uh, as something that needs to be at the top of their agenda with their kids. Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, I don't know the story behind Joe, Joe Lieberman and uh, Hillary Clinton and like, do they just see like just some one person tell them, "Hey, look at this violent video game," and they're like, "Oh my god, that's crazy! We need to have action on this now." Like it's it's, I don't know the story behind that, but I always found it kind of, kind of I don't know, kind of weird in my opinion that this is yeah. something that they would champion for so long, um, yeah. When you have so many other societal issues in our country, you know, it just was very uh very weird. But so that being said, the reason why I asked that question about accurate results or whatever, because there's so many different ways you could, like, there was something about saying, I think one of the questions was asking if they would give someone hot sauce that didn't want hot sauce. Would you be more inclined to do that? And I was like, and that was like, I guess the way they interpreted aggression was increased aggression because of that. I was like, well, that doesn't, you could say that in a title or in an article that that does increase aggression, but your, your, um, source for that was a hot sauce question. Right. So it's, um, so now whenever I read anything, it's like, I, do I believe it? Like, what was the questions they were asking? Um, yeah, definitely the, the framing issue is, is, you know, is important because, yeah, when people hear about it, what, what the general public hears when they hear aggression is obviously very different from, particularly in the experimental studies about how we measure it. I mean, like I said, I mean, we can't have people knife each other or, or you know, hit each other in the in the lab, that would, that would be obviously unethical, <laughs> but presumably there'd be lawsuits or, you know, whatever else, um, you know, police involvement, who knows? <laughs> Um, you know, so we are kind of like left to, you know, we have the hot sauce, you know, test and I've used it, you know, and we have like the ice water or we put, you know, someone can put their hand in another person's hand in a bucket of ice water 
And um, and then there's a, there's a noise blast one where you give someone a blast of annoying. It's like white static, you know, kind of noise if they lose at a reaction time game. And yeah, you know, so they're they're interesting, but yeah, I mean they're not they're they're obviously not what society's really concerned about, right? We don't worry about like the gangs of Chicago, you know, wandering around with like hot sauce, giving <laughs> spicy food, you know, in order to like uh assert their turf you know this kind of stuff you know um so there's that and there's also like the effect size issue that really that i think has really come out particularly in the last few years you know uh particularly with some of these like meta-analyses that find you know almost nothing you know the, the effect sizes are near zero um but then how, how do you frame that you know it's kind of like when these glasses half full glasses half empty kind of things if it's near zero but not zero, is that a success? Does that mean, like, look, video games really are, you know, sort of linked, you know, to something negative? Or is it close enough to zero that we can say it's zero, you know? And in fact, you know, this this little tiny effect is probably due to noise from the studies themselves rather than anything real. So, you know, like, like you know, the, the effects of violent video games on aggression are about the similar effects in, in magnitude towards, you know, uh, eating potatoes and committing suicide. You know what I mean? There, you, you can find these itty bitty little correlations with large samples for almost anything, you know, and it's probably mostly due to noise, you know, but what happens is when people have this particular hypothesis and they see these little tiny correlations, they ignore the fact that they're tiny um, and, uh, and may not be real. They may be this, these kind of noise effects and they promote them, you know, uh, ignoring the fact you could find similar tiny little but statistically significant correlations for almost any two things, you know, in the world because of these noise, you know, types of effects. So, I mean, you alluded a little bit to some of like the dietary stuff. And, and I think that's what's come out like over the last couple of weeks. I don't know if you've seen this. Stuff. I'm all excited about this because I'm a carnivore. But, um, you know, the red meat stuff, right? There's a study that came out that said, like, it turns out red meat really isn't bad for you. Um, and. You know, and I think what what happened there, and of course that that study came out and it made a whole bunch of other scholars mad because they've been saying for years that like red meat is like plutonium, you know, essentially. Um, you know, and I, and I think what happened, of course, I'm not an expert in that area, but I'm, what I imagine happened from some discussions I've had with some of these scholars is that there, there are these itty bitty little correlations that exist in these huge data sets. Um, and people got really excited about these itty bitty little correlations and over promoted them. You know what I mean? So what, what the, what the public hears is that red meat causes cancer, right? You know, but it comes from a correlational study first off and the effect size for that relationship is so tiny, um, that it's less, you know, than the effect size for eating potatoes and getting cancer or, you know, or something else. And it's just that. You know, this little correlation fit into a narrative that people already thought was important. And and, and and even the scholars themselves don't always engage in enough critical thinking about, like, is this tiny little effect something that we really want to promote? Or, or at very least, how do we, you know, ethically and honestly communicate this to a general public that is, by and large, not scientists and, you know, not equipped um, to critical think, you know, some of the stuff um, in the way we might want them to. So, yeah, I mean, so I, I think that's, you know, part of the issue is, is that the way that we have framed, and this is what kind of got me interested in this, you know, 20 years ago, and this is also kind of what got Patrick, I think in some ways to sort of to change his perspective is, you know, do we take these little tiny, tiny correlations that are no different from, you know, the correlation between wearing eyeglasses and depression, 
um, and make it sound like mass homicides can be prevented if only we regulate, you know, violence in video games. And, uh, and but, but that's exactly what we have done, you know, in, um, you know, in this field. And, um, and I think, you know, as much as the science needs to change, as much as we need to have more rigorous science, we really need to rethink how we as a field, and I mean psychology, I don't just mean video games, you know, how as a field, what do we do with these little tiny, tiny correlations we can get from big samples that are in most cases probably noise? And, and are we doing the public a disservice by making it sound like all of these things are important? Um, and, I, and I think we are. And, and I think that eventually we're going to get blowback as a field. I mean, psychology has always struggled with a sense of not really being scientific. And, but unfortunately, we as a field engage in a lot of behaviors that aren't scientific. Um, and, and I think that needs to change. And, you know, and, I, and I think you know, video game violence in many senses was this kind of canary in the coal mine that we identified it with this as being a problem, but we're now seeing that, that these kinds of problems with lack of rigor, with miscommunication of tiny findings and stuff are really endemic to, uh, to social science and medical science, uh, to some extent as well. And so, uh, there, there's a lot we need to change in the culture of how we do science and how we communicate it, I think. Yes. Yeah, interesting you brought that up. Cause I thought a thing that I found very fascinating was, uh, I can't remember whose name it was, but I, I think he was, he was proposing some um, evidence that video games were not um, a reason to, I guess, uh, would cause violent. You know, they're not the reason for violent crimes. And uh, I can't remember who it was. He was younger. He was young in his profession. He wasn't um, like tenured or anything like that. And then he was getting all this blowback from all these other professors that had been doing this for years and their studies. And I was like, wow, that sounds really awful. Like that you're providing evidence and these other guys that have been doing it for so long don't want to accept it because it changes what they've put out over their, their tenure. And it's just like, like, like how, that's why I was kind of happy when you were talking about um, Patrick Markey, how you said you kind of, you feel like he kind of maybe come around course in some of the things. Like, I think that's what a good researcher scientist, you present the evidence. Like if I, like me, I don't think video games cause, you know, violent behaviors or whatever, but you present the evidence to me and it, you know, it's clear cut. I would change my, my thought process and that goes for anything, but I don't know. It just, it kind of disappointed, disappointed me seeing and reading that, um, in your book about how that happens within the field. Um, well, it's kind of, it's kind of funny. I mean, for a field that ostensibly is concerned about aggression, you know, to, uh, yes. to hate so aggressively. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, little, a little irony there, but, um, yeah. so I want to pivot off to, you did mention you talked to, um, Vice President Joe Biden after Sandy Hook, he had like a commission. Um, was this so? First, was this a bunch of experts in your field to talk about video games, or was this something more broad, like you were saying? I yeah, guess. it was. Um, so he, he had had a whole bunch of these hearings, or what? I don't know if that's the right word for, it, but meetings uh-huh. um, on a number of different issues. And I think like the video games was the last one of some series of, of meetings that he had had, and he had called together. It was a combination of, of uh, scholars. So, you know, there were pro- probably half the people there were sort of researchers who did something or other with video games or media. And uh, and then the rest were video game executives. So uh, you kind of had these like video game mm. executives in the room with, with, with scholars, which was kind of an interesting mixture yeah. uh, in a way. But uh, it was it was probably like it wasn't that long. It was probably like 
two hours, maybe an hour or two hours, something like that. And uh, it was very much as I described. It was it was it was the Joe Biden show <laughs> for, for the most part. It was really I think he talked more than really by, by far more than anybody else did. But but he kind of went around the table and gave everybody basically like two minutes like to, to say their uh you know, to say their piece uh, about what they thought was going on with it. And uh, I mean, the, the, of course, you know, the, the industry, was, you know, was, was what the industry was. I mean, you expect they were not like thrilled about taking the, you know, they didn't want to carry the stone, you know, for that particular issue, as you might imagine. But, mm. uh, you know, the scholars are there were also, I think, you know, for the most part, you know, trying to suggest this probably wasn't like the biggest issue that the Biden and, and Obama ought to be focused um, on, um, you know, necessarily. But, uh yeah, and and I think you know you know what came out and basically what he said during the meeting was that he even he didn't really think it was I think he described himself as agnostic on the issue of, of video game mm, violence okay. you know um, but uh, that he didn't think it was you know the main issue by any means that you know it didn't seem like he was that he wasn't Lieb- like Lieberman you know like yeah. uh, going after this for like twenty years or whatever he you know he he clearly wasn't really that interested in this topic. And and more, I think that you know because of all the newspaper headlines and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, uh, he he and the administration felt like they had to talk about it, you know, at very least make it part of the package, maybe, even if it wasn't really the thing that they were, you know, um, you know, super interested in. This, this is all before it turned out the guy mostly played Dance Dance Revolution, by the way. <laughs> you know, so uh, you know we didn't know that you know at the time. So we every, everybody presumed he was a big you know violent gamer just because he was twenty. You know, he's a young guy. You know, so odds odds are good if you're that age and male that you probably play a lot of violent video games. Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of like you know shooting monkeys in a barrel a little bit, but turned out in the end, I mean, he probably he probably did play some you know violent video games, but uh, he was mostly obsessed with Dance Dance Revolution. Is this and Adam Lanza so- you're re- you're talking about from right. yeah, okay this is Adam Lanza, from yeah. the Sandy Hook stream? Okay, so it's interesting that you brought that up because I thought I read, I, I mean, I thought a lot of things I read about him was he played Call of Duty as well. Was that not true? They found out he played more. Dance Dance it, Revolution. He mostly played Dance Dance Revolution. The other game I want to say that they mentioned for him is Super Mario Brothers. Oh. Uh, that he played apparently a fair amount of. So so they went into his. I mean, the one thing they went into his house and they did find a variety of games. You know, and I think maybe there was like one of the older versions of Call of Duty was in there uh, somewhere. They did. I mean, they did find a mixture of violent and nonviolent games. But for the games that were for his console, they all were old. You know, so they, you know, because I actually went through the list and looked at, you know, the release date, you know, compared to when the shooting occurred. And most of those games were like five years old, you know, at the time. So it looked like he wasn't really playing much on a console at all um, by the time that the shooting, you know, had occurred. You know, so I think we could certainly say at some point in his life, he probably did play, you know, some of the Call of Duty games uh, or whatever. But by the time, you know, the shooting has come around or, you know, within the, the past several years, Leading up to the shooting, it looked like he mainly was playing the only the only games people could see could you know had witnessed him playing were again the Dance Dance Revolution, which he seemed to be obsessed with. He played because he played that in public, and then I, and I think a, a I don't know a neighbor or a friend or someone who knew him said that he also liked uh, the Super Mario Brothers game and, and and played that one a lot. So you know, so I mean, we wouldn't def- we definitely wouldn't say that he was like a you know violent video game virgin you know necessarily. Right. Uh, but it didn't. All, all that narrative about him, like locked in the basement playing, you know, thousands of hours of Call of Duty and getting up thousands and thousands of headshots and this kind of stuff, all was fabrication. Yeah, there, there, there was never ever sourced in the the investigative material that he, you know, played any particular amount of time online playing Call of Duty, getting any number of headshots. Um, 
at least not in the years leading up to the uh, the actual shooting itself. So mo- most of those numbers and stats and that kind of stuff were invented by somebody. You know, we don't know who invented it, you know, because they were anonymous sources, right? You know, so some of these oh, anonymous yeah, sources yeah. largely invented this narrative of him, you know, racking up, you know, tens of thousands of headshots or, or tens of thousands of kills or whatever else online playing Call of Duty. There was, nothing came out in the official investigation to indicate any of that was was accurate. And, and in fact, they, about a month after they released the official investigation report, which highlighted Dance Dance Revolution, um, the... Uh, the police in Connecticut uh, did this kind of what they call like a document dump. You know, they just sort of dumped a whole bunch of all, all you know, all the things are public, you know, information, right? Mm-hmm. So all the, like it, the all the individual officer reports and this kind of stuff, like every piece of paperwork that anybody filed during the investigation were all dumped together. It was like you know some absurd like yeah you know, ten thousand documents or something like that. You know, so nobody could ever go through all of them, but uh, but it was in PDF. So I did a little PDF search for video games. You know, just sort of running through it, um, and uh, the only things I could find. So again, there was all this kind of like narrative that like the, the like these police officers are really focused on video games. They're really really interested in like how he used to like swap out mags and you know just like they do in the video games and this kind of stuff. That never came up anywhere in these like you know official um, you know p- pieces of paperwork uh, from the investigation. It was the only mentions video games ever got. In fact, I think from mostly, you know. Uh, there were several examples where officers who were interviewing, you know, family members of the of the deceased, uh, the family members would ask about video games because they were hearing the newspaper report. You know, they were reading the newspaper or whatever, and the and and, and the officers would tell them, uh, and I think the quote was, and from one of them was something like, "Not to believe in hoax theories." It was was actually the word that one of the officers used um, when talking to one of the families of uh, of the of the victim. So even even the officers who were investigating. In the paperwork they were filing, were indicating that they were not looking at video games as being a major uh, contributor. So all that stuff that was happening in the news media was was again it was, it was a great example of a moral panic unfolding in real time, right? You know that uh, it turned out he really wasn't you know playing these games for the most part. Um, He's mostly playing Dance Dance Revolution, and he, you know all these reports about like what the officers were investigating. You know it turned out not to be true. It wasn't substantiated in this big document dump. You know that uh, got released. Um, at the end of the investigation, and for the most part, the the officers that were investigated were not that interested, um, you know, in, uh, in in video games. But uh, yeah, I mean, so it's so it's kind of fascinating how much really really bad information, you know, kind of comes out after, you know, I, I imagine any kind of trauma, but you know, certainly coming out of you know one of these sort of mass homicide, um, you know, events is. Uh, you really have to be careful about the newspaper headlines that follow that because, you know, the, the official investigation reports oftentimes are very different uh, from what people, you know, thought happened. I still see this with other like Virginia Tech. Turned out he mostly played, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, with, uh, you know, uh, Aurora. It turned out he wasn't dressed like the Joker. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. All yeah. these kind of examples of, of like false narratives that evolve and can be kind of hard to get rid of, you know, once they, you know, are out there in the, in the public consciousness. Yeah, I think I read an article in the Roar Shooter that said that he was, in, in an interview, he said he was the Joker, but that never happened. And it's, Correct. man, it's like, it's <laughs> wild what stuff that, I guess, I, I get it, you know, like, saying a mass shooter was obsessed with DDR, like, that headline isn't, like, sexy, it's not gonna, like, like DDR, like, like, Dance Dance Revolution, like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense, so... 
Obviously, yeah. it sounds more interesting to say he played Call of Duty, he played you know Doom or whatever it was, you know. To, right. Uh, and it, it's kind of, in my opinion, a little irresponsible, but I kind of get it. It's kind of su- it's just a sucky situation is basically I would uh, describe that. So right, um, right. I kind of want to pivot off to something a little bit different um, as we wind down this episode. Um, I'm not sure how familiar or how much you've delved into this, but so now, if you haven't noticed, the big talk amongst gamers is microtransactions and gambling <laughs> and of course what about the children you know we've got to save the children from <laughs> from gambling right so yeah. i'm kind of curious because i do personally think that predatory predatory tactics in games regardless of the mobile games or console games um it's kind of kind of crappy and um can hurt someone that has these you know addictive tendencies so um, what are your thoughts on gambling slash microtransactions in video games and your experience with those? Yeah, sure. I mean, so, I mean, obviously, no, nobody really likes microtransactions, right? No. I mean, it's, it's not, no. you know, it's, it's, nobody is like, oh, I'm really glad they finally came out <laughs> with microtransactions, you know. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, it's a certain business model and it's sort of like advertisements. I mean, you know, in in the right context, I guess we might say we might put up with them. You know, uh, in order to otherwise access, a, you know, a free to play, you know, of course, there's no such thing as a free to play game, but you know, the, the a, a ostensibly free to play game. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I think it depends. I mean, obviously, you know, microtransactions themselves take different forms, and and I think what people are mostly unhappy with are sort of like um, mandatory microtransactions. In other words, you can't really succeed at the game unless you uh, engage in them. And, uh, you know, transactions where, you know, the drop rate might not be um, transparent, you know, so you're not really fully informed about what's going on um, in, uh, in the transaction. So, I mean, I think like, what was it, uh, you know, Battlefront 2 has kind of become like the poster child for everything that's wrong with microtransactions. Yes. Right? And that, you know, you really couldn't, you know, compete in the game unless you indulge some of the microtransactions. And, you know, the drop rate for them wasn't, you know, um, you know, made clear, you know, for them. And uh, and that was on top of buying a $60 game, you know. So uh, there was a lot to not love about how Battlefront 2 handled the, the microtransaction thing, you know. Um, I, I, on the other hand, I mean, you, you get games like, you know, I just recently last year played the Call of Duty World War II game that like somewhere... I don't know, months into playing, I realized, wait a minute, this game actually has microtransactions. I just didn't notice them. Mm. Um, and I didn't, you know, purchase any, obviously. But those are the crates, you know. In that game, you have these crates that fall. And, um, you know, they don't really add anything you need, though, right? Sometimes they have new weapons, they have new skins, they have new other things. Um, but the all the weapons are about equal in terms of their, you know, utility, um, at least technically. Uh, and... You know, getting these new weapons doesn't necessarily make you com- more competitive against the people who are just using the standard weapons uh, that were available when you purchased the game. You know, so you can engage in those microtransactions if you want to, um, but you don't have to. You know, and so I, I have less of a problem with that model um, than I do with you know, sort of like the mandatory microtransaction kind of you know model where you're kind of forced you know forced into it and. And, and I think, you know, there's not a lot of research on microtransactions yet. I mean, you know, there's been a little I'm – in, I'm involved in one study of, that's, uh, you know, looking at microtransactions. And uh, a guy, David Zendel, is in a, an, another a couple of, of good studies looking at microtransactions. And I think that what seems to be emerging 
in my opinion, from the studies of microtransactions, isn't so much that microtransactions are causing things like addiction or whatever, but but for players who already have like a gambling addiction, um, because the microtransactions you know have some at least superficial resemblance to uh, to gambling, that uh, people who already have gambling addiction issues tend to spend more in microtransactions um, than do people who are not you know gamblers, uh, and. The good news is is that those numbers aren't very big, though. You know, so we're really talking about I think on average we're talking about like forty or fifty dollars a month um, that problem gamblers spend. Problem gamblers spend more on microtransactions than 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 the non gamblers. Again, there may be some outliers of people who spend. You know, you get a, you get a distribution, and maybe some of these people are spending much more than that. Um, but uh, generally speaking, the the overall numbers are relatively small. So you know, again, compared to like, is this a thing that like. You know, even if we're worried about addictions, is this the sort of thing we need to like have right at the top? I'm not so sure. This is like the biggest thing in addiction compared to like the opiate ad- epidemic, oh, you know, yes. that's going on in in the U.S. You know, right now, this is like one percent a problem uh, that that is. Uh, maybe um, you know, maybe even less. Um, and and I think there would be some very simple fixes, you know, to this. Um, that you know, if if the uh, um, game companies. It just put a content label on the box, you know, just like all the other content labels, you know, for like violence and sex and language and that kind of stuff. Just stick something on there saying like, look, this game's got microtransactions, just so you know. Uh, and then, you know, have somewhere where they publish the drop rate, you know, for the different items. Um, I think that would cover a lot of this issue and maybe have like spending caps, you know. So having a maximum, like, you know, if someone's spending like $10,000 a month on microtransactions, maybe it's time to cut them off. You know, um, so I mean, I think there might be some s- simple policies that the game companies themselves could enact that would be reasonable to sort of, uh, you know, blunt this issue of uh, of microtransactions. But but it's important to point out that there, you know, in, in fairness to games, there there are other areas that are microtransactiony as well that don't get as much attention. So like. Uh, trading cards, you know, tend to be very similar. You know that, that these sort of opaque packages, and you don't know what you're getting. You know, um, and Legos. Uh, I don't know if they still do it, but they used to have you know the, the little characters you could buy, and they would be in opaque packages. You didn't know which character you were getting. You know, and, and granted, maybe the you know the the dollar spend on those is going to be capped anyway because there's only so many characters. But uh, you know, there there are other areas where outside of video games, you know. People have used something that looks like it's not exactly a microtransaction, exactly, but certainly this kind of like you don't know what you're getting. You're going to have to keep buying until you, if you want a specific thing, you may have to buy multiple times until you get that specific thing. And we're not going to tell you how common that specific thing is. Um, you know, it, it definitely is seen in other areas, uh, other businesses, um, and such. And, and maybe they're all problematic, you know, uh, or maybe they're all none of them are problematic. But I, but I think if we're going to make the sort of you know argument that that business model is bad, then I think we need to at least be consistent in saying that you know everything from Cracker Jacks to you know, video games, you know, that use that model, it's problematic as opposed to singing out video games, you know, by themselves. And because uh, otherwise, there again, you get into the sense of like why video games and, and people, you know, perhaps unfairly singling out video games because they're in the news. You know, they're the thing that old people today don't like. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know what I mean? So um, so I, I think it's hyped somewhat. I, th- I, th- I think that, you know, this idea that like the, that microtransactions are going to cause like this like new wave of zombified addicted kids. I don't I don't think the evidence is there for that. Um, but on the other hand, I, I do think 
microtransactions aren't like a wonderful, beautiful thing. And, uh, and there probably are some steps that the industry themselves could take to sort of, you know, uh, uh, manage the this issue uh, somewhat, both as a public relations thing and also just as a you know taking care of your customers, um, you know sort of a thing. And um, you know, but I, and on the other hand, I, I'm not not really a supporter of like government you know intrusion in, mm-hmm. into this issue and and like regulating like it's slot machines or um, you know or things like that. Uh, I think I think that's probably going a little too far. So I'd like to see something moderate happening. You know, I, I would like somewhere between nothing and like government regulation. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, to, to happen, uh, but we'll we'll see what we'll see what comes of it. So that's interesting. You brought up the ESRB, um, the ratings board that puts these things on uh, the content on the games and then rates them for. I'm not gonna go into the detail of what they are, but the reason why I kind of want to. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. So I'm a huge game, a huge NBA 2K player. I played it. I played it since Dreamcast. You know, since it came out, and they have the thing you were referencing, my team packs, which is packs you open up and you get these players you can use in an online game. Um, and so there is this level of randomness to these packages, and. What, what I found out, which a lot of YouTubers posted, is Strauss Zelnick, the Take-Two CEO. He's the CEO of Take-Two, who um, is the publisher and owner of NBA 2K, is also on the board of ESRB. So, oh, okay. yeah. so currently, NBA 2K is rated E for everyone, but let's just say that these are gambling, um, these are gambling-type elements. Mm-hmm. People are saying it should be rated T for teen. Which could affect their sales. So it's kind of—I'm not sure if you're aware of that, or kind of like what's your thought? It, don't you think there's a little type of conflict of interest in there that he's also on the ESRB, and um, also the CEO of Take Two, who has a vested stake monetarily in this? I just kind of—I found that extreme. Yeah. So I kind of sure. wanted to poke you about that and see what you thought. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and of course, you know, the the ESRB, um, you know, isn't independent of the game industry. I mean, it, it is, you know, basically an arm of the game industry. Um, but it's, you know, is the arm that is, um, you know, tasked with with doing these ratings. And that's, and essentially, you know, in fairness, that's not different from like the MPAA system or, or uh, you know, any of these systems. They're all they're all industry self regulated, uh, you know, systems. Mm-hmm. But but absolutely, I mean, I, I agree that it certainly creates this sort of impression at at very least of uh, uh, a, a conflict of interest in the sense that if there is this sort of movement in the direction of you know offering these things as content warnings you know that we're going to say that uh yeah I, I don't know if it necessarily needs to be rated t i mean you know for teen or whatever but um but but in the sense of like even if we're going to like stick a letter on the box or something saying that there's microtransactions in here i mean obviously if you have individuals whose business model is going to be you know challenged uh, or hurt you know by something like that then that obviously opens up the at least the impression of a uh, of a conflict of interest, so certainly you, you would want, you know, to put it bluntly, you would want decision makers about these issues to be individuals who are not going to be financially or personally imp- impacted, you know, by uh, those, uh, you know, those decisions. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think absolutely there is at very least a an impression uh, of a conflict of interest there, and of course, probably a very real conflict of interest, you know, in that, um, you know, in that, uh, you know, situation. But yeah. 
So yeah, I think I think <laughs> I think yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't mean to give you like a gotcha moment because I didn't. I know I didn't give you the uh, this and. Oh, you didn't get me. You got him. Yeah. Okay. I didn't. I didn't put this in my in my notes that I gave to you before the show. So I just wanted. I wasn't trying to like get you cornered and you know give you an an, uh, an answer to a question that you weren't ready for. So, but I just I thought that was really interesting. I didn't know that, and um, but I thought that at least yeah, like you said, there is an impression of conflict of yeah. interest. So. Um, well, I think it's probably, it's not, you know, in, in fairness, it might have been the sort of thing that, you know, it, they might not have seen, you know, I mean, this, this this whole thing about microtransactions is a relatively new issue, right? You know, and it's not exactly what people generally think of as being a content issue. You know, we usually think about, like, the ratings being dependent on, like, sex and violence and language, you know, smoking or, or whatever else might be going on in the game, you know, and, and, and uh, to have a game mechanism rather than content, you know, become something that may either be a... You know, content warning, which is weird, weird way of putting it, maybe. But uh, you know, whether we put a little letter on the box, you know, for microtransaction, or we rate the games differently because of the microtransactions. I mean, I think I think a part of it is just a cognitively, it's not what we think of as you know, um, you know, it's new ground. You know, I mean, usually the con- you know the ratings are based upon content, not mechanisms. Um, so, and, and that's not to say that they shouldn't be based on mechanisms, but I, I think it's probably. Uh, you know, whenever he was on the board, maybe this wasn't really, you know, or when it, when he was elected to the board, it wasn't really an issue, and now it is, and so, uh, you know, it it may be something he he needs to recuse himself from, or you know, uh, making these types of decisions. But uh, again, I, I think the, the answer to this is for the ESRB is is full transparency. Who's making these decisions? You know, what complex of interest do they have? How can they shield themselves if if it's possible to shield themselves from? Um, you know, any kind of apparent conflict of interest and, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, we'll see how that all turns out. All right. Good stuff. Um, so I'm, I believe I'm going to end it there. Uh, we've talked um, ad nauseum about violent video games in history, but it's been um, amazing. And it's been a lot of fun uh, picking your brain and getting your thoughts and how all this stuff works. It's been uh, really great. So I just want to, again, thank you for coming on and talking with me today. Um, you have a new yeah. book. So I was gonna say you have a new book coming out in January. I give you a chance to maybe talk a little bit about that. So for the millions of listeners that I yeah. have, can uh, get yeah, yeah. Well, it's, and it's not about video games. Uh, although oh. video games, get, video games do get mentioned um, a couple <laughs> times in it. So if you, you know, if you really are dying for every mention of video games, I think it comes up in a couple chapters. But uh, no, the, the book is uh, how madness shaped history. So it's uh, the so it's pretty much just what it sounds like on the cover. Um, so it's basically, uh, like I said, I'm kind of a history nerd and I'm in psychology. So it is, uh, a book that is basically a narrative of all these like kind of like crazy characters from history and all like the absurd things that they did, like everything from the emperor Caligula through, you know, George the third, who was kind of like the mad king of England during the revolutionary war. Um, and, uh, just kind of looking at their histories and looking at why they may have done what they did, uh, all the kind of like crazy and cruel and brutal things that they did throughout history and, and how, you know, these issues of madness or mental illness or whatever we want to talk about it in some ways actually really changed the course of history. Um, in some respects, if, you know, if only someone different had been in charge, things, you know, these are all kind of counterfactuals, right. But things might've turned out, um, very differently than, uh, than they did. But, uh, so it definitely is, a, you know, kind of an interaction of, of psychology and my love for history. Uh, I, I, you know, kind of pick on psychiatry a little bit, which is where some of the video games come in, like the, you know, the new gaming disorder diagnosis and things like that. So we kind of talk a little bit about how, 
you know, perceptions of mental illness themselves are oftentimes shaped by society and societal values. And then, uh, then towards the end, we, we talk about uh, Trump um, a little bit. Oh, and uh, so uh, it's a little bit of fun for the election season. So <laughs> you want to have a little discussion about whether Trump is mad or not. Uh, that shows up at the, towards the end of the book uh, as well. So hopefully it'll be time just right uh, for... Uh, um, the uh, the election season and uh, in fairness, I talk about you know Trump and you know the Republicans on one side. But I also talk about like the progressives and the you know sort of like the Twitter call out culture and all that kind of stuff on the other side as well. So we're, we'll try to decide if we've all basically just gone mad. Oh yeah, Twitter. That's a whole another <laughs> few hours of discussion there. Yeah. <laughs> I love to get your thoughts on that as well. But um, again, Twitter is a cauldron of hate. Is yeah, what it is. I mean, I mean, I'm on Twitter too, so yeah. I'm probably contributing to it. Uh, but uh, you know, <laughs> um, no, it's uh, yeah, no. This has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, is there? You said you had Twitter. Uh, do you mind sharing your Twitter handle if everyone wants to reach out to you? Absolutely. So yeah, Twitter handle is C. Um, everything's just variants of my name. So C J F E R G U S O N one 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 one. That's my Twitter handle, and I also have a web page, which is just my name again. It's Christopher J Ferguson altogether dot com. Christopher J Ferguson dot com. And it should be in the description, so you guys can just click on it. You won't have to listen to this and type it in. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so again, thanks for coming on, uh, Chris, and maybe hopefully. Sometime down the future, we can talk again about something else. Maybe not about video games, but something else nerdy. Sounds great. I appreciate it. That'd be yeah, great. No problem. All right, cool. Well, thanks for having me on today. No problem. Thank you.